So, a very good afternoon to everyone and um, good evening. And if you're with Renee from the United States of America, New York area, good morning. It is absolutely awesome to have you join us today. This is such an exciting webinar. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, Johan and I were chatting previously, and although I'm certainly by no means an expert in the space, I'm fascinated by the concepts of ethics and artificial intelligence. Ethics as a professional body and as, you know, what we do, certainly of great interest to me. So, Johan, thank you for sitting up. Johan Stein is our chair of special, the special interest group in artificial intelligence and robotics. Thank you, Johan. From me, welcome to our two guests, Renee Cummings from the USA, Dr. Jacques Ludic from Cape Town, South Africa. Awesome to have you all with us. Uh, Johan's in Pretoria. Tony's in Joburg South. So we've got some interesting uh, geography here <laughs> going on. To our delegates who just joined us, and I see, I can see Stefano Galato has joined us from the UK. So we really are getting an international webinar going here. But awesome to have everybody with us, and you don't need to want to listen to me. So from IITPSA, welcome to our speakers, welcome to Johan, and welcome to all our delegates. And without further ado, Johan, I'm going to ask you to take over and take us forward. And we really, really are looking forward to this chat. So thank you to all. Tony, thank you so much. Uh, always, you know, between you and the team at the IITPSA, and I know you have several of these uh, events amongst the other things that keeps you crazily busy. So thank you for, for um, helping us to set this up and, and to market it. Um, I'm very excited about today because it's such an important topic and we've got two amazing people who I will introduce formally. Um, Renee, I consider as a friend and, and also Dr. Jacques. The only difference is, Jacques, you are not on my Facebook because I'm very private. I think I've got 23 friends on Facebook. They're real friends. They mostly live overseas, but Renee is a Facebook friend. <laughs> so, so, so I'm like you. Can... I'm like you. I feel honored. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so um to to all our delegates thank you we would love to hear what you think and and as we going through the conversations please add your comments or your questions in the chat some of it we might leave toward the end but i'll also try and go um with the flow as i see the questions come in and it's relevant to what we're talking about at the moment so um <coughs> excuse me <coughs> we um renee we by the way we're joining you from the second industrial revolution because we have rolling power cuts in this country again unfortunately um, <laughs> and um, you know I often think we, we talk about this uh, the digital divide and doing good in our country with AI which are relevant but if we can't even provide electricity and other basic services to our people and especially our young people how do we even get to providing them digital services and upskilling, but that's not the topic of today. <coughs> what I want to do is quickly introduce um, our two guests. So Renee Cummings is joining us from New York. Okay, let me do that now. I'm losing the fight with the coughing. What I love about Renee is that she loves South Africa. She's been here before, and if um, once COVID restrictions um, allow it, she tells us she wants to move to Cape Town to be uh, Dr. Jacques' neighbor. <laughs> but Welcome. I love the fact that you love <laughs> South Africa, <laughs> Renee. And, and Renee also knows about where my passion lies. You know, my own son who's adopted and a brown boy and the way I feel about our, our rural youth in particular. So I look forward to us interacting when you are here. But so just to tell you about Renee, she's a criminal psychologist. So I'm always a little bit nervous. Um, when I speak with her, because I think she might just detect lying, like AI would, <laughs> and an AI ethicist. Um, she's based in New York, a data activist in residence at the School of Data Science at the University of Virginia, a community scholar at Columbia University, advisory board member of the International Research Center of Artificial Intelligence, UNESCO, and advisory board member of the AI or your AI and equity initiative at Carnegie Council, uh, Renee. So I just sorry I had a note from Tony that I'm, my signal's breaking up a bit. Um, hopefully it's not oh, load shedding again. You. I hear you clearly. Yeah. Okay, super. Well, we're gonna hope for the best, Renee. By the way, I only got electricity going um, half an hour ago. Uh, so, <laughs> but anyway, so welcome so much, and what a distinguished. Thank you. Thank uh, you so much for inviting me. It's such an honor. Thank you. Oh no, the honor is ours, and thank you so much for joining us, uh, Renee. And then Dr. Jacques Ludic, who joined us previously, founder and CEO of Cortex Logic and Cortex Group, 
founder and president of the Machine Intelligence Institute of Africa, and author of an incredible book that you really should get if you haven't yet, called Democratizing AI to Benefit Everyone, and also the founder of Sapiens network and in fact just an hour or so ago i was uh, with dr jacques on a, another webinar we spoke about this the wellness uh, product that these companies developed together with uh, media 24 and and focusing on young people in particular so why i feel so alive about uh, our two uh, speakers today is because it's not just the tech and the platforms it's about doing good it's about the that sense of uh the future of our children because without that what are we even doing if we're just doing ai to make money and have jobs it's not I'm enough for, for me you know so so jacques and uh, renee thank you so very much um Maybe let's start with you, ladies, first, Renee, yes. and also because you're top right on my screen. <laughs> um, so I did a bit of an introduction, and I might have missed things, but tell us a bit about just yourself and the work you're doing, and especially around this topic of ethics, and what is it that concerns you, and what is it that makes you feel alive as well? Thank you. Thank you so much. And again, it is such an honor, and it is such a privilege, and indeed a pleasure. So when I came to AI, I came as a criminologist, and I came because of my interest in those risk assessment tools that were being deployed in the U.S. criminal justice system, and we were seeing the biases and the discrimination in those tools as they were adjudicating sentences, and, and particularly within the context of the kinds of sentences, the time frame of those sentences, the uh, uh, intensity of those sentences for black and brown uh, individuals. But I also come from a corporate background. And um, many moons ago, I spent a lot of time as a journalist, as a broadcaster, as a communicator. And then I transitioned into risk management and communications and crisis communication. So when I come to AI and AI ethics, I come from two perspectives. I come from a risk-based perspective, which is I spend a lot of time speaking about ways in which we can detect risks and we can mitigate those risks. We could manage, monitor, evaluate, and then improve those systems. So I'm very committed to that business formula. And much of what I do is I try to operationalize AI ethics and responsible AI and trustworthy AI from, I'd say, from the, the C-suite to Main Street. So I have that passion for how do we build that ethical culture uh, in organizations. But coming from a criminal justice perspective as a criminologist and criminal psychologist and someone who has worked uh, sorry, in the uh, prison system and working with incarcerated uh, populations, I also come from that rights-based perspective, which is social justice and looking at racial justice and looking at design justice and algorithmic justice and, and how we need to bring those two perspectives together. So at the moment, I'm spending some time in academia and my work at the uh, School of Data Science at the University of Virginia, I'm working on a specific public interest technology tool. And what this tool does, it measures the amount of algorithmic force that's being deployed by U.S. law enforcement on the streets, and in particular, Black, Indigenous, people of color uh, communities, where we're seeing a lot of money being spent on technology uh, within the rubric of crime prevention, and not enough money being spent in those communities on ways in which we need to make people dream of something bigger and better than what they are existing in. So my main uh, intent with this tool is not only for individuals from a public interest technology perspective and from a accountability and transparency and civil rights and civil liberties perspective to understand algorithms and the power of algorithms, but to try and foster and, and to, to generate a different kind of relationship between communities and police in the United States and really to bring a more broad-based and a democratized perspective of AI. So that is how I come to AI ethics, and that is how I come to data activism. And I always say that data activism is more real-time and more proactive and a radical form of ethics that we need in underserved communities. We can't wait. But I also sit in the C-suite and I uh, advise executives and business leaders on ways in which they can take this very philosophical academic concept and roll it out in real time that affects the bottom line. So that's what brings me to AI. Wow. 
I'm like vibrating because there's so many things you said that's so interesting and that, um, Renee, so, so I mean, living in the US and, and being a person of color, I mean, we've been reading about uh, the algorithmic biases. We've been reading about and seeing on the news the, the policing uh, happening through facial recognition, which struggles with female faces and people of color. We've, we've read about IBM and others rolling back on that technology. Um, and then, you know, in our country, we're starting to see more and more in the media about the government wanting to use facial recognition um, and so forth. So um, I, I would love to, to hear your perspective as we go on. By the way, and I'm sure everyone on this uh, webinar have seen uh, Coded Bias on, on Netflix. And if you haven't, after slapping you around a bit, I would love to tell you to go and watch it. And um, and, and to Mitt Gebru, who um, we resigned from Google. Um, and I, in fact, yesterday, my piece on Business Day was about that and about whistleblowers. So that's quite interesting. But Dr. Jacques, maybe the same question to you, but we come from a different lens. I think Absolutely. facial recognition and, and those kind of things are not as prevalent here yet, but yes. it's coming. But it's coming. from a South African and African perspective, when it comes to AI and ethics and also a bit more about your own work, yeah, I'll just I'll, I'll just let you flow with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm just going to close the blinds soon after this as well. I see the sun is coming through, which is great. <laughs> um, I just want to quickly say, yeah, no, Renee, it's fantastic hearing your perspective, your lens. It's, it's for me so wonderful to see um, the different um, people with different kinds of background contributing to this important. We live in a smart technology era, and I talk here in the book about shaping a better future in the smart technology era. And that is also my massive transformative purpose, is also how can we, and it's exactly what you said, Johan, it's about how can we use smart technology to create beneficial outcomes for society, for people? Um, this is just tools. How can we ensure positive outcomes, beneficial outcomes for society? Um, so I'm super excited about this. I've written in my book, Democratizing AI, or Artificial Intelligence to Benefit Everyone, I've talked about this topic. This is kind of the heart of the topic of, of the book. It's really about that. But there's also specific chapters that deals with ethics, responsible AI, trustworthy AI. Um, and my background is in, in obviously, I've, I've been my whole career in AI. I did my PhD in machine learning AI in the 90s, probably one of the first in Africa doing in this. And at that time, it was not, nobody knew really about AI really here in Africa. And then I just realized so many incredible applications and things that, that, that can be created. And I started to get into that and I started to, to, to um, start some, found some companies uh, to provide solutions uh, with AI. But so I was immediately into a space where I was already starting to, to use AI as a smart technology to operationalize AI. And I realized there's two worlds there. There's a consumer facing world where ethics plays a massive role. And then there's on the industrial side, maybe ethics less there. It's more about trustworthy, robust AI. Um, but on the consumer-facing side, and that started to grow. So the industrial space was almost kind of there. There was always, always sensors, and we can build models of processes and pieces of equipment. We can do predictive maintenance, and we can increase throughput and yield, and we can add business value. But on the consumer side, as we, as the internet era grew, and we're now into the, the AI era because we've got so much data available, I think the whole ethics play, especially around consumer data, is, is, is incredibly important um, to deal with responsibly. Um, so in the book, I talk quite a bit about that, um, I, and I would love to go into the principles of AI ethics. Um, earlier this year, I moderated a podcast uh, with Swiss Cognitive, the Global AI Hub, where we had fantastic speakers, people like Danilo McGarry that sits on the European Union, and, and the opinions on ethical AI versus um, um, robust or responsible AI. What's the differences and stuff? So we can go into those kind of details as well. Um, but anyway, but the bottom line is, for me, being um, uh, an entrepreneur, a smart technology entrepreneur, implementing solutions, working with consumer data, Privacy, especially I'm into health wellness and healthcare and, and, and all these kind of applications, those data is, is, it needs to be private. And uh, we need to be super responsible and ethical 
in how we manage this. So this is very real for me. And uh, in the, just earlier today, I did a presentation, Johan referred to that, where we talked about military-grade encryption that we've built in to ensure if the teenagers, this is a, the Beef Teens is, a, is a, a mental wellness companion for teenagers. You've got a 24-7 counselor. You've got an AI chat there. You've got educational content, all of that provided. But this is their private space that they operate in. And we need to ensure that everything's encrypted and we do things right. So we, 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 for me, it's, it's, uh, it's personal. It's the way, it's, it's the way we do business. Um, so looking forward to the rest of the discussion. Um, I, I think it's quite exciting. It's so much to unpack. In terms of Absolutely, this. Uh, Jog. <laughs> Before we go on, just a few shout-outs. I see, uh, if I look at the chat, Rob Kerridge-Walker, who is the head of the special interest group on um, software testing and quality management. And, and Rob and I have been speaking about doing a combined webinar on on the kind of the intersection between smart technology and software quality management. Because, yeah. you know, I think if you're going to manage my healthcare or if you're going to try and save my life using AI technology, I sure as hell want to make sure that the algorithms are and the quality of the software is good enough. Um, so, so we're going to do that. Um, also, uh, let me just quickly see who else is on here. And again, there might be a few names that I might not immediately recognize, but Jeremiah. Guta from Zimbabwe, who is involved with our Gauteng chapter. And um, I already see a few questions here coming through. Um, Stefano, we'll get to yours, but everyone, please keep on adding questions. So, Renee and Jacques, I've got a few questions lined up because I actually did prepare for this. But <laughs> I want to ask you, and I'll start with you, Renee, what are, and I think we've already touched on some of it, what are the four or five most important topics on AI and ethics or responsible AI in your view at the moment? Because I eventually want to get to implants and post-humanism and stuff like that. But for, for now, let me ask you, top hot topics on AI ethics? Well, I think in the US in particular, the questions would be around algorithmic justice or algorithmic injustice, or bias and discrimination. Of course, looking at accountability and transparency and explainability and looking into the black box, that question of proprietary rights and trade secrets and intellectual properties versus the opacity of the black box and whether or not we can truly have transparency and explainability and responsible AI. Of course, it's use of, of, of safety and security and privacy. I mean, those are all the critical issues at the moment, but I think uh, the biggest question about ethical AI is really, what is it in real time? Mm -hmm. uh, moving from that philosophical interpretation for us to distill it into ways in which it can be practiced. So we speak about trustworthy AI, responsible AI, principled AI, but how do we do it? How do we do it? And how do we do it in real time? Because we must appreciate, given the ubiquitous nature of AI, its pervasiveness, its power, the fact that it is uh, operating as a speed that we cannot hold back. It means that if we are taking injustices and inequities and equalities at that speed, we may not get the opportunity to pull back. So this is why diversity and equity and inclusion and, and justice is so important. And as I always say, they call me the AI Jedi because I am so committed to justice, equity, diversity and inclusion, the first letter in each word making the acronym Jedi. So it really is about bringing that broad-based perspective, democratizing the data, understanding that data is about power and privilege and politics in as much as it is about predicting and forecasting and insight and foresight. But I think for me, it comes from a place of honesty. And if we begin at that place of honesty, accepting the kinds of histories we have had in the U.S. when it comes to data and communities of color and really designing our strategies, then I think we come from a place of understanding and a new kind of invention where we can really reimagine our AI futures in ways that are more equitable. Wow. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I like what you say about honesty, Renee. I think... Firstly, let's be honest that we all have biases. That's human nature. Um, I don't understand your world and your life. Even though we live in this cosmopolitan world, especially in our major cities where we interact a lot with people of different cultures and backgrounds and um, you know, diverse maybe religious views, 
um, still, even if we have friends of different colors and, 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 and faiths and all that, we, we are, I think our biases will always be there. So it's good to know it's there. And before I go to you, Jacques, as an example, I, I was on a, a panel discussion a few months ago about IoT, and then we got into the future of South Africa and all that. And, and this one person who I think meant it well, but he said, you know, given that we have got so many free courses on online and there's so much on YouTube and all that, because we were speaking about the fact that you have to upskill yourself. And this person said, there's no excuse not to upskill yourself. And then we went to the rural kids, the poor kids in our rural areas. And I just stopped him. And I tell you, I had to bite my tongue because I, I said to him, have you been to the rural areas? And I'm not talking the the um, apartheid museum in Soweto, which is in one of the better areas of Soweto. Have you been like really deep in? And have and I had the privilege, uh, luckily, a few years ago to for a year I spent time living in the townships and in people's shacks, and it was an eye opener. And I said, you know, if you five people living in a little shack, if you have very poor mobile phone connectivity, if you most likely share a mobile phone amongst the whole family. If you have got no privacy, if you can barely eat. Comment on the ethical versus trustworthy AI where it fits in and stuff. But I, I think to answer your question specifically, I think uh, clearly um, here in South Africa, um, it's still early days because of how AI is being applied. We obviously have businesses utilizing AI. Governments will be using, starting using AI. And we want governments to be ethical as well. Um, and, and, and obviously businesses as well. So that's, those two areas um, will be quite visible. And I think it starts with things like the Poppy Act, uh, which is like GDPR in Europe, um, where it's about privacy. How do you use data? Are you declaring how you're using the data? Are you actually, because you don't want uh, data to be uh, manipulated or abused for commercial gain without the user actually knowing about that. So I would say, especially consumer-facing businesses in South Africa, it would be quite relevant. Um, but, but, but again, if you just look at this whole framework, the framework of trustworthy or responsible AI, there's lawful AI, but they break it up in three pieces, lawful AI, ethical AI, and robust AI. And I'm sure, Renee, lawful AI, that would be interesting to cover even your background in law and stuff. Um, the ethical part of it, there's, there's four ethical principles uh, that the uh, European Union came up with, the respect for human autonomy, prevention of harm, fairness and explicability, which Renee also mentioned. And it was quite interesting to look at Oxford's digital ethics lab. Um, they, they said, and I, what I did in the book as well, and what I've tried as part of my research, is also just map these things. What does the different people say about ethics as well? And and it was quite interesting in my discussion earlier this year, it, um, it was quite interesting that the commissioner, European Union AI Alliance, was saying that every government interprets ethics differently. And it's almost like it's easier to, uh, to agree on the term for responsible AI than ethical AI. Well, the East versus West versus Africa versus all the different things. So it would be interesting to, 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 to dig into that. But, but just in terms of what Oxford, what Oxford's Digital Ethics Lab is saying versus um, um, the European Union, Oxford is saying autonomy as well, but they also talk about beneficence and non-maleficence as well. So beneficence is doing only good that includes promoting well-being, whereas maleficence is, is do, no, do no harm that includes privacy, security, and capability caution. So, so they... they there's both sides of the coin, so to speak. The other one that Renee also talked about is justice and then explicability. So th those are, I think there's kind of me kind of on the main categories, this kind of agreement. But now when you dig into it, what, what, what does it mean, beneficence or justice? Justice in the East versus justice in the West, slightly different. Uh, in terms of autonomy as well. Uh, and, and, and you think about, we don't want digital dictatorship. We don't have government to control these citizens. We need privacy as well. So how do we handle those kind of things? So it's, it's, it's really airy things to discuss. Um, yeah, so I, 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 I think it's uh, – but let's, let's unpack it a bit. I think there's a lot absolutely. more to, to discuss there. <laughs> maybe – I know, Jock, absolutely. Uh, maybe it's a bit of a segue. Um, Renee, why do you want to live in South Africa? You've been here before. <laughs> You've – 
What, tell us what if, what's the passion about? I'd love to hear a bit more. It's beautiful. It's certainly. I mean, <laughs> yeah, not only it is fantastically beautiful, but I love the diversity of South Africa. When I came to South Africa, it was to speak on AI ethics. I spoke at the University of Cape Town and I spoke at the University of Johannesburg. I was also at the Institute of Safety and Security, uh, Security Studies in Pretoria. And I did a lot of work with the different uh, data academies in Johannesburg and, of course, in, in, in Cape Town at the Cape Town, the U.S. Library in Cape Town. So I, my journey in AI ethics uh, really was launched from South Africa. And uh, the thing that I love about South Africa is coming from an AI ethics perspective, a diversity, equity and inclusion perspective. I think South Africa is uniquely positioned to get AI right because of your commitment to the fourth industrial revolution, because of your commitment to technology, because of the quality of talent and creativity and because of the diversity and because of the honesty because South Africa had an opportunity to deal with its past in an honest and open way, something the U.S. has never had the opportunity to do. So I always felt to me that the future of AI ethics uh, is the future of a South Africa fourth industrial revolution. So this is why, and just the creativity of South Africa in general, I think makes it such a, an extraordinary place to really build AI systems that can develop uh, the rest of the world in, in such an advantageous, put the rest of the world in such an advantageous position. So that was my dream for South Africa. Yeah. My AI ethics dream for South Africa. Oh, that's amazing, Renee. <laughs> and you know what? I mean, sometimes we who live here can become quite pessimistic. <laughs> But then I, you know, over the years I've had friends from Europe, and some of them returned and never left, especially in the in Cape Town. I mean, if you come from Europe, why not live in Franschhoek or um, Stellenbosch, uh, Jacques? I mean, <laughs> and also I too, I can... you have such you have some challenges that you want to address with your underserved yeah. communities, but then you also have the great technological talent and skill and ideas. So it's like you have the experiment, you know, and and, and yeah. you can get the experiment right, and and that yeah. that's what yeah. I think. Absolutely. And you know, it's yeah. interesting, uh, Renee, and, and I, I often collaborate with BAPESA, it's the Business Process Enablement South Africa, and I think I was actually introduced to them through Tony and the IIT PSA. And, then, and basically what they do is to try and get business from overseas uh, for, for organizations to outsource their BPO and their call centers to South Africa. And they've had some really interesting successes over the last few months. Um, I mean, right now, I think they're busy opening up a 900-seat call center in Durban. And I often say, imagine we can build a world-class facility near some of our poorest rural areas, oh. upskill the youngsters, use proper tools to get them to be great call center agents. So by the time the call comes in, they've got all the data on their screen and so forth. But one of the reasons, it seems, is because we have such a diverse um, community. We understand different accents. We've got different senses of humor and, and so forth. So it seems that a lot of South Africans make great BPO and call center agents. So can we not just create 20, 30, 40,000 more jobs? And I think that's what the PESA is doing. Um, Renee, but what I want to do is I quickly want to get to one or two of the questions to you and uh, Jacques. Uh, let me just quickly scroll down here. Let me see who... Stefano said, uh, thanks, I have a question for you, but later. Oh, that's for Tony. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, oh, Stefano, you did say, and, and maybe I'll start with you uh, here, Renee. He said, um, can we have an informal definition of algorithmic justice? Because it's very important, but it's also, I can see that it's difficult to understand. And even I think myself, I mean, what the heck does it mean? So in your view, what is that? For me, algorithmic justice is ensuring that algorithms are designed with uh, levels of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And algorithms do no harm. Algorithms also bring a trauma-informed understanding to the mm -hmm. ways in which algorithms are just not computational, uh, uh, you know, statistical uh, formula, but algorithms have the opportunity to leave a legacy. So it's about ensuring that we remove bias and discrimination, that we 
respect rights, that we uh, pay attention to human rights and civil rights, and we bring that social justice perspective in there, and we bring a, a critical thinking to the ways in which we design technology, understanding the long-term impacts, understanding in inequities in certain communities, and understanding in everything we do, we ensure that there is due process and procedural justice and uh, requisite levels of due diligence that really speaks to an eternal vigilance when it comes to ethics, to protecting people's rights and, and future. So that's oh. my informal definition. That I sounds poetic, that. Jacques. Yeah, I, yeah, I love that definition. I actually commented quite a bit about that. I, I think you use different terminology and stuff like that, but this is so core to what, what we need. I just want to, in terms of justice, uh, and, and I've learned quite a bit as part of my research, and, and Renee, you might know John Rawls. He wrote a book called A Theory of Justice. And I, I quoted him quite a bit in my book, a reference some of his work. And I, I found that uh, quite uh, enlightening. Um, the Rawlsian theory of justice basically states that one that, the one that promotes fairness above all, we should be thinking about justice. And then it's rights, laws, policies, and procedures. But how should we do it? From a veil of ignorance. And, and that's difficult mm -hmm. because, as you rightly said at the start, we all have little biases. And it's so difficult and to, to, it will, you need to be really disciplined to say, am I doing this from a veil of ignorance? That means that I essentially need to forget who I am, who, I, who we are. We, we must forget our, our lot in life, uh, the chance that has given us the conditions under which we were born into, all of those kind of things. And then, then only when you've, you've gone through that process, you can then think properly about justice, ethics, laws, regulation, policies, all of those kind of things as well. And then we can create the countries, the businesses, the institutions that promote just, just living for everyone. And, and, and I think, and that's a big discipline. I'm not sure to what extent uh, governments and, 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 and we are implementing this, but they, for me, there's at least great uh, thought leadership on justice and there's other perspectives as well. Um, and, and I think we need to incorporate that into our kind of thinking and not just in the leadership and people making decisions, but I think civilization as such, in the individuals. This is for me part of the education of everyone. Um, mm. And this brings me to obviously my massive transformative purpose for humanity. I talk about sapiens.network where we talk about can we have an AI system that almost guides us with lifelong, life-wide learning, help us to understand the world better, to make better decisions, um, inform us, um, be more ethical in terms of how we operate, all of those kind of things. So we need kind of that assistance and help and just to, to get our minds almost like just calibrated a bit so that we, yeah. we, we can act in, 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 in proper ways. There's so much that we can do as a civilization um, to improve um, and, and get better, to become better humans effectively. Absolutely, um, yeah. Doc. And, and you've touched on uh, what Juan Diles asked, but before I go to that question, which I'll uh, ask you, Jacques, I mean, um, Renee, so, so I, I know more about the US and its history than most people, most of my friends, and the only reason is because I'm an avid reader and I've been there. Um, but I've got a number of friends who've moved to different parts of the US and they've been living there for 20 years or so, and what they often tell me when it comes to the racial issues in the U.S. And I mean, we see watch CNN and Fox and what's it, Trump's favorite channel <laughs> and, and others. But, but they all, yeah, what they all tell me is that you don't have a clue if you don't live here. And if you, you know, so I think, you know, we, we often have a Hollywood kind of a view of the U.S. So I think when it comes to injustice, which is now amplified with the use of technology and algorithms, it, it is much a much bigger issue than I think a lot of us appreciate. So I don't know if you just want to comment on that if you want before we move on. Sure. Now, now <clears throat> I would say this. The U.S. criminal justice system is really an exceptional system, but no system is perfect. Every mm -hmm. system has its challenges. I think what has happened uh, with AI and with algorithms, AI and algorithms built on data, and the data sets in the United States have a very uh, dubious kind of relationship uh, with the things uh, that we're doing with data. So when you have a history of, uh, of enslavement and oppression and, and you know, uh, imperialism and colonization, all these histories, those histories are represented 
in the data sets. So although we can create the technological systems to try to debias the data set, there is no technological system that could debias every mind. So when we are using the data, we've got to have that level of diligence and vigilance that lets us know what's the background. You know, why was this collected? How was it analyzed? What did we exclude? What did we exclude? What was the research question here? And, and what else was packed into that research question? So what we're seeing is that there needs to be a lot of thinking behind the ways in which we are just using data or believing that every data set is, is neutral and objective because as it has been said, there is no raw data. Every data set comes with a memory of decisions made, comes with a history of those decision makers who had this data before us. So what we are seeing is that algorithmic decision-making systems are now a very powerful tool that are being deployed just in every sector, in every industry. In healthcare, we're seeing challenges when it comes to healthcare algorithms because the data sets are just not diverse. So you have healthcare algorithms that are misdiagnosing and underdiagnosing and not diagnosing enough when it comes to black and brown people. Let's say black and brown women and breast cancer, when you have an algorithm that has been trained only on white women. So mm -hmm. these are some of the issues that we're seeing. Facial recognition. Um, we're seeing it in hiring tools that have been trained on the, the resumes of men, really denying women access. We're seeing with individuals with disabilities who are not able to use the technology because we are not paying attention to that kind of access. So what we're seeing would be just the old stereotypes and the old biases of society just finding their way into these algorithmic decision-making systems. But these systems are now so powerful and are being deployed at such speed that we don't have the kind of ethical education that makes people understand about the power of these decisions. And if you are, let me think of things like deep fakes and disinformation campaign in the United States or the ways in which uh, Facebook is finding itself in so many uh, different challenges. You know, people start to understand how your data could be monetized and how that data could also be weaponized against you. So there are particular scenarios in the United States that have made people wake up to the fact that we need to pay more attention to what's happening with our data, as well as just um, the fact that algorithms are designed by people, you know, and I always say we, we don't want to get to a point where we need to design an algorithm to teach us how to be human again. So we've got to do the work now and we've got to do the work with honesty and intention and saying that this is our history. Let not let us not use new technology to just replicate the past. Mm. Oh, eloquently said, Sarah. Thank you, <laughs> Jacques. I want to get to, um, and I can't believe where the time is. Uh, you know, because this I can do for hours. I'm no, absolutely. Thanks, Jacques. I want to get to Wandelia's question uh, for you, Jacques. She says, um, or he. I'm sorry if I got the gender wrong there, but how can AI improve transparency of the government and oh. general operations to reduce corruption? Huge oh, topic yeah. everywhere, but especially for us, what do you no, think? I, for me, the way I'm looking at this, um, I'm actually looking at the whole smart technology toolbox, and AI is a super important part, but obviously, if you think about crypto, no, no, look, cryptocurrency, but blockchain technology as such can be, because if you've got something, and that's for me part of the smart technology toolbox, to, to think about that, and AI and blockchain also goes hand in hand. We can automate processes in a transparent way if it's, um, if it's facilitated uh, by a blockchain type of system as well. And you can have AI systems or smart contracts that's actually utilizing AI or smart software to actually help make decisions, but only but make sure it's very transparent. And, and, I, and I think so there's incredible opportunity, I think, from a governance perspective, to use smart technology to absolutely get rid of corruption Make everything super transparent because in, in, if you think about governments, they should serve the people. Um, they are just there to serve the people. If, well, if you look at democracies, um, they're there to serve the people. So if we can have systems that we can really trust, I think that's the opportunity. And even in my massive transformative purpose, I, I actually talk quite a bit about, um, uh, about what can be done in, in this regard as well. Um, my other big worry is is around digital dictatorship. Um, I, I think governments can misuse 
um, uh, uh, data to incredible extent and smart technology. And that's probably one of my biggest worries. Honestly, if I think about it, it's not just China, the East, where it's a real danger. Um, and there's not necessarily a problem to be collectivist, to think about a community, because their whole philosophy is more about our, civil, our, our community. And, and I think we need to get a balance between individual rights and privacy and the community. We're still part of a civilization. So I talk quite a bit about that in the book. Um, but we have got real threats here. And Renee talked about Facebook and a few others. There is clear, they talk about surveillance capitalism. That is more when uh, tech companies or retail AI-driven companies are using um, effectively all sorts of data. And remember, if you look at cell phones, if you think about the way you interact, every click, are they collecting data? That is a way to, to actually try to build almost models of your persona, your behaviors, and then that could be monetized. And, and mm -hmm. we need to be ethical around those kind of things. But that is a real danger, and we already see the negative effects of surveillance capitalism. But then there's state surveillance. And, and we saw already in the U.S. Um, laws in San Francisco, for instance, where, where, they, where they said specifically, uh, no, facial, facial recognition. Police can't use it. Th those type of things as well. In, in, we see also in China that they're using this pervasively, starting to use this pervasively, and they say they're using it for the common good. So it's like a, 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 it's like a landmine of problems, potentially, um, ethical problems all over the place. So I think it's very important that we are very become very clear in our thinking about how to use it, get the balance right, and even on a global level, because we're dealing, and that's my problem also, I think it's almost like we are going to outlive countries or national borders and so forth, because the problems that we face facing with is not only climate change, it's lethal uh, climate change, but also lethal autonomous weapons. It's bio we see what's happening with pandemics. Say, for instance, it's bioengineered. Um, it just goes across boundaries. We've created this civilization that's super connected. Um, it's like a civilization intellect. We 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 we've got to be super careful how we deal with these kind of things. So, mm. so I think governments have got a huge responsibility. Um, to deal with this in a responsible way because we, we are working with national governments at this point um, and uh, we've got to be super sensible and, and just tread carefully here. Um, and I just hope in Africa we do it right because... Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to add a quick comment there when it comes to uh, AI and transparency and corruption. Uh, there's really some exciting work going on in AI and procurement, ways in which we need AI to procure the kinds of government services as well as to track mm. the ways in which government services and monies are moving through government. So from a procurement aspect, AI procurement is another way to put uh, you know, those checks and balances wow. on the ways in which governments are, are spending money. Yeah. Wow, amazing. Can, to add what Renee is saying there, what's nice about AI machine learning, one of the applications is anomaly detection. So you've got procurement, you've got lots of different types of procurement, but you can say, oh, this one is, is as an anomaly. This is like not normal. Um, and with AI machine learning, you can pick those kind of things up. So that's a mm. great example. I think here yeah, in South Africa and Africa, we will keep the algorithm so busy that smoke will come out of their ears, picking up anomalies, unfortunately. But it's a good thing. And I think blockchain is another layer to put on top of that, potentially. Mm. I want to, as we have another 10, 15 minutes left, want to shift gears a bit to the so-called human-machine interface, which yes. I think into our future is also a huge ethical topic. We read about our South African-born Elon Musk, although when he was young when he left, so we can't really claim too much about him being a South African originally. <laughs> but um, Neuralink, who, who claims to have um, almost like a hair, a human hair thin device that they can, without surgery, implant into your brain. Like all these things, the potential benefits when it comes to treating paralysis um, and, and other ailments is incredible. The dark side is even bigger and more scary. Um, but I think we, we're getting to this point, and, and earlier I mentioned the word transhumanism, which for me is a fascinating topic to, to read about, this view that technology might actually help us 
either live much longer or never die to artificially produce limbs and hearts and kidneys and, and all those kind of things, which most likely will only apply to a small amount of the elite. And I don't think the masses will have it, but I'll start with you again, Renee. When it comes to human-machine interface, which is a real reality into our future, because it's one thing if you hack my bank account, but now if you can read what I'm thinking, it's, it's a tot now technology is totally different. So your views from an ethical point of view about where we're going, going in, in interfacing our bodies with this kind of technology. Well, I think um, it's all about, for me, collective intelligence and that relationship between human and machine is a relationship that we're going to get to a point where it's going to be super sophisticated and super savvy. It's about efficiency. It's about effectiveness. You know, and it's about expediency, but it's also about ethics. And, and I think we're not going to allow ourselves to get to a place where things will do harm. I think I think humanity is, is, is well positioned for that because when you look at the history of the world, there are many situations that got out of control, but somehow we were able to pull back because of organizations and institutions and, and just people among us who step up to the occasion and, and, and you know, who, who speak out and who ensure that we do the right thing. So I think it's interesting and I think it's going to be a, a very interesting uh, conversation, like how we speak about uh, super intelligence and, and general intelligence, and now we only have narrow intelligence and how long it's going to take us to get there. Well, I don't know if this is going to happen in my lifetime or the lifetime of our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, but I think uh, the human spirit uh, really embraces a kind of approach to humanity that's going to ensure that we don't you know, kill ourselves out or do things to, to destroy us. But I think it's very interesting conversation. I think it makes for exciting research. Uh, anything in healthcare and AI that can do anything to make us healthier, live longer, stay uh, beautiful. I don't know if we all want to stay young forever, but uh, anything in healthcare, I mean, I'm so committed to what AI can do in healthcare. Uh, I come from also working with children with, with cancer and blood disorders. So I'm, I'm really passionate about uh, AI, you know, particularly uh, with children. And there's something about children and health and, and pain that really touches me in, in, a, in, a, in, you know, in such wow. a, a unique way. So I, I just want to see those kinds of developments and, and to help families and to, you know, just, just give people to give people that, that extra life. So I'm, as I said, committed to anything that's going to do good and benefit the greatest good and, and give us the kind, give people the kinds of lives they deserve and, and to help, you know, society. Uh, anything that's going to do harm, if I'm not here to, to be speaking about AI ethics, I know there's going to be a whole community coming forward that's going to ensure that we do things right. And especially those who are reading Dr. Jacques' book in South Africa, right, uh, are going to know what to do. So, so I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid yeah. Yeah, Renee, I'm so with you. I, I, I believe also the human, I'm just hoping we do the right thing because we, we um, and in the book, I use this analogy that we are like on a runaway train here. It's almost like driving a car and you just have control of the steering wheel and stuff. And we, but we've got to be so sensible. I also believe in the human spirit. I, I, for me, is I think we sit as humanity with a great opportunity to create the beneficial outcomes for us and use the tools for tools. We can decide not to create systems that that dictate us. We, we can use, even if it's super intelligence, we can use it to serve humanity and serve us in, in for, for beneficial outcomes. Now, for me, it's super important. I talk about the MTP, the massive transformative purpose, the goals for humanity. And for me, one of one of the key ones is around maximizing quality of life, character building, sense making, well-being, meaningful living. If you think about us as humans, we, we, those kind of things are super important. That's why I've dedicated a chapter to a book, the book uh, about meaningful living. What does it mean to be human in the 21st century? We need to answer that question. And, and uh, I, I digged into that uh, chapter specifically. I also talk about super intelligence and where things are going and what could go wrong and so forth. But you want to your specific question around that. I, I think we've got to be super careful. Um, I understand the, the the healthcare use cases for this, but I think there are in the AI community uh, people that want to say we want to upload brains, we want to do those kind of yeah. things. And I think we've got to be careful with this. Uh, obviously, it's great if we can live longer, stay healthier, but in the end, it's about meaningful living. 
well-being, character building, quality of life. You can maximize quality of life for as many people as possible. We're doing great as civilization. Mm-hmm. We need to understand we are still biological beings. And it would be wonderful if we create these AI systems or systems where that embody the human spirit, but embody the best of humankind. Um, real, also to think about quality of life and character building. Why don't mm. we put enough emphasis on those kind of things? How do we implement those kind of things in systems? That's one question. But even if we upload and do all sorts of stuff, which is very dangerous, I think we get, need to get the basics right. Uh, as as humanity, yeah. I think as humanity, it's almost like we're still kindergarten uh, in terms of maturity and character building and being the best that we can be as as humanity. And uh, and I think we need to fast track this. I think we've got and that's that's why my massive transformative purpose for humanity and the things that I talk about the goals is really around can we can we get excited about that future, creating that future for for us. And uh, yeah, so I'm. I, I, I follow Neuralink as well. I, I think it's great. I love the, the, the healthcare applications, but I still think we've got to be super careful uh, about the use of that technology as we do with other applications in AI. Absolutely, Ajog. Quickly, two shout outs. I see Tony's also done it in the chat. Firstly, just to welcome Karen Church. Tony says you're a long-time standing and active IIT PSA member, previous head of department IT at Nelson Mandela University. And then Emeritus uh, Professor Neil Duffy, Bits Business School, lovely to have you here as well. Um, I can't see all the guests, and, and there are a few more questions. We almost need to wrap it up. I, I think, you know, for me, as the more I've been reading about so-called post-humanism and transhumanism, you know, there's also that, and, and I think both of you have touched on it, uh, Renee and Jock, but the dignity of human life, and you know, we we see death and dying in our modern age as a failure of science, where in many previous ages, it was such a normal part of life and it was celebrated. And, you know, in in our kind of so-called Western civilization, when somebody dies, we want to put them in the ground as quickly as possible, have a cup of tea and then duck. Where in other cultures, even here in South Africa, it's a lot more prolonged thing that people are supporting the widowers uh, or the widow. Uh, But it's a celebration of in some cultures, people going to the gods or the forefathers and all that. And, and just interesting, and if you guys ever want to go and Google this, and because when we get to the philosophy of this stuff, the, I mean, the tech for me is kind of, it's very exciting, but that's the philosophy behind it. So, and and I'm going to almost close, but in, there's a, the a best book I ever read is a book called The Denial of Death. And it was yeah. written by Ernest Becker. And he, the book was published three months after he died of cancer. Oh. And it's one of those stories where 20 publishers rejected him and eventually somebody took a chance on him. And, and in 1974, he won the Pulitzer Prize on this book, The, the Denial of Death. And um, it's interesting, and I'm busy writing some articles on this, how you can take look at um, transhumanism and this desire to live forever and be super healthy and all that with yeah. this denial that we will die one day. And, uh, and basically what he says in the book is we build kingdoms to try and outlive ourselves. So whether it is building a school or the way we raise our kids, which is relevant, but uh, but he says we inherently fear with dread this dying because we also are the only mammal on earth that knows we're gonna that know we're gonna die one day, and that can think of the future and the past in those terms. But I would, it'll be interesting, and this is a whole other webinar, is to take the philosophy of death and dying and where transhumanism and implants and Neuralink will take us, you know, so there's so much to think about. I think, you know, in the last five minutes, uh, maybe both of you, and again, starting with you, Renee, just some closing comments, and it's lovely to see both of you, really. But Renee, yeah, <laughs> sure. come, come, let us know when you're coming. Please. Yes, I will. <laughs> Somehow, else, I'm going to get my autograph uh, copy of uh, Dr. Jacques' uh, fantastic oh, yeah. book, which I I've need got, to get. I've, yeah. I've got your copy here. Which I need to get. You know what I would say about AI? Oh, I I need that copy. Uh, For me, my closing comment with AI ethics is this. I always say that AI is the language of the now. This is the language that we're speaking. We all need to get literate in AI in real time. Data is the linguistic part of, of AI. We need to understand how we, how powerful it is the kinds of privilege it can create, uh, how political it is as well. We also need to understand that 
uh, there are certain things that we need to pay attention to. We, if we want to speak about a mature technology, AI maturity, we must have integrity. We must have trustworthy systems. And for us to really take this technology where it needs to go, we must have public confidence and public trust. So I, I always speak about diverse stakeholder engagement, community involvement in the ways in which we are designing and developing and deploying technologies. And if we are diligent and if we pay attention to things like due process, and if we understand why due diligence and duty of care are critical to the ways in which we design technology, then we will have the ethical vigilance that is required. I always say it's not about us just doing the most ethical thing uh, you know, every time, but it's about just living in the ethical moment and understanding. And I think what ethics is for me, it's about more questions than answers. We're never gonna have all the answers. We're never gonna have perfect AI because we are not perfect, but at least we can have the understanding to know what needs to be done to understand why we need not create harm and to understand the long-term impacts on society. And one of the things that I want to see with AI because I'm so passionate about AI is to ensure we get AI right for the greatest benefit of all. Oh, good answer. I almost can't add anything to that. That's beautiful. <laughs> Beautifully said, uh, Renee. Try and add something, Jock. No, no, I will. I will. I will. I, will. I, I, I think um, for me, if you look at what trustworthy AI, AI and, and think about ethical AI and so forth, that is for me really core underlying basic building blocks that we need to get right, even as part of this massive transformative purpose for humanity that I sketched out also in the book. And I maybe I want to close maybe with that because I think it's important to for humanity to have hope, to have a purpose, to think about what, it, because I think people struggle with mental health, all sorts of issues, and there's so many issues, but if we can, if there is a common purpose, I think that would be awesome. So what I've stated there, and I want to end with that, massive transformative purpose for humanity is to evolve a dynamic, empathic, to, be, to show empathy, prosperous, thriving, self-optimizing civilization that benefits everyone in sustainable ways, and in harmony with nature. And it's broken up in four different pieces by driving beneficial outcomes for all life through decentralized, adaptive, and agile economic, social, and governance systems that reward active participation and positive contributions to society and civilization, but also helps to keep peace and protect humanity from any potential harm in elastic ways. It has to be elastic. If it's COVID-19, we need more protection. If it's less, then government should get rid of the authoritarian nature and stuff. So that's problematic. We have to respect individual freedom and privacy. And then I think we need to democratize, and I talk about in the book, knowledge, science, smart technology, all sorts of tools in human-centric ways that are based on wisdom, good values, ethics, to dynamically solve problems, create opportunities in abundance, and share the benefits with everyone. So there's more there. We want to maximize quality of life. But uh, I'm, I'm, uh, if, we can live, if we can have such a future and such a purpose, I, I think we're going to create a better world. So I'm going to work, do my best to work towards that. <laughs> Johan is back. Yes. Sorry. Let me uh, – I uh, just dropped off there. I, was, I just sent Tony a message saying, please thank them great, greatly for me. But can you guys hear me? Yeah, we can. Yeah. <clears throat> Before I hand over to Tony, both uh, Renee and Jock, you are people I greatly admire and I love following your work and I would encourage all our delegates to uh, get Jock's book. I don't know if you've written a book yet. I'm sure you have. Uh, Renee. Well, Follow is Mine is on the way. Mine is on the way. Okay, super. <laughs> okay. Both of you, thank you so much. I wish we had a lot more time. Renee, we welcome you with open arms. Come to South Africa. We need you. I'll be Jock, back. As always, thank you so much, Antonio, and again for you and the team. And handing over to you, thank you very much, uh, Tony. Thank, <clears throat> excuse me, thank you so much, Johan, and particularly, of course, to our guests, Renee from the USA, Dr. Jacques from Cape Town. Thank you. Fascinating discussion. I've been very quiet. I've been biting my tongue to not, <laughs> not come in and join in the discussion. And, and maybe I'm going to just be very naughty and throw in a um, uh, a 
pebble in the pond and see where the ripples go just for future thoughts is one of the things that fascinates me is we as a professional body obviously very interested in the concept of ethics and ethical behavior and um Rene, i saw you latched onto the thing that i was talking about about the um duty of care and i certainly like your concept of do no harm i think for me the question though is and i see that someone posted just now elizabeth something fairly similar where she talks about we have questionable what happens if we as humans have questionable ethics already and i think one of the questions about ethics and how we replicate that into ai is what are ethics and do we have a common understanding and view thereof and certainly from my point of view in my own studies historically where with uh, and, and i think Jean, uh, johan opened with that about cultural differences and you know all sorts of differences you know diversity that perhaps challenges our interpretation of what is ethical behavior and what is moral behavior and how do we then translate that into the digital world so so maybe that's a discussion for another time because i worry about the fact that apart from the biases that we have is simply those inherent differences in understanding and behavior and how does that you know sort of work out in the world of ai so there's tony parry's very amateur two cents worth but <laughs> Love it, but, but 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 thank you for that, and Renee and and Dr. Shark and Johanna. I mean, it's been a really really interesting webinar. So thank you so much. We definitely have to do this again, Johan. So we said last time we need to talk about AI and ethics. I mean, ethics in AI, AI and ethics. I think we need a a V two and a V three and a V four, and <laughs> because I just think there's so much to cover in this area. But thank you to all three of you thank on you. behalf of our audience and. Um, I see we've got a note from one of our board members, Carl, as well. Thank you all very much. It's been a very interesting and thought-provoking webinar, and we really look forward to seeing you all again. Renee, if and when you do come to South Africa again, I'd love to meet you in person. Uh, we've really enjoyed your discussion. You. And um, stay safe in New York. Have a good rest of the day. We Our day is ending here. So thank you all very, very much, and stay safe. Stay warm until we catch you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. God bless. Go well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.